Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 18? And let's just get into it. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, as we have gathered, we're in one place with a lot of people, some that we know and some that we don't know, but your children nonetheless. Because we each have a relationship with you, that means that we have a relationship with one another as brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord, that though there are many people, we would get to know one another and build tight, intimate friendships uh, among ourselves, Lord, where we can call upon uh, each other and call upon you with each other, and you would form those bonds of friendship more and more in this large and wonderful church. We pray, Lord, now that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, even using the limitations of the human teacher, and that you sovereignly would speak through one verse or another verse to every single life. We worshiped you, Lord, in song, and now we worship you by giving you our full attention. We worship you by listening. As the Lord Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And so we want to hear. We want to hear more than just facts about history, though they are there, and facts about geography, though they are there. We want to learn the movement of your spirit through the word into our lives. And as a result, may we become stronger and more devoted to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Genesis chapter 18, a warning. We're going to be here till 8.30. Um, I'm giving you, I call it a warning. For most of us, it's not a warning. We're used to it, but not everybody is used to a Bible study that would last an hour. So I'm giving you in advance the warning. Uh, if you feel you need to make an adjustment, it'd be, it'd be better to do that. Uh, and I probably should have said that before we prayed so we could bow our heads and then we wouldn't see you make that decision because now you're going to be very conspicuous if you try to move around. But everybody basically keeps their seat and we ask you to show respect to the Word of God by doing so. I don't want to put anybody on the spot. We understand if you have an emergency, but better be an emergency. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) We've been looking at the life of Abraham. Abram, he was called at first, exalted father. His name was changed in chapter 17 to father of a multitude, Abraham. In chapters 11 and 12, we noticed his calling. His home was Ur of the Chaldees. Iraq would be modern day area he was from. Called from Iraq into the land of promise, the land of Canaan. So that was chapter 11, principally chapter 12. That was his calling. Then we also noticed in chapter 12, his carnality, how he didn't trust the Lord in the land of promise, but he went down where? To Egypt, because there was a famine in the land. So the end of chapter 12 and part of chapter 13 is his carnality, going down and trusting in the arm of the flesh, Egypt, rather than the Lord. In chapter 14, we saw a different side of Abraham. We saw his courage as he, along with 318 trained household servants, went against a coalition of four kings, headed by one Keterleomer, who subdued five cities. And Abraham went after them and delivered Lot, delivered the spoils of war back to the kings, even going as far as Sodom to take it back. Also in chapter 14, we saw Abraham's communion. Let's call it that. That's when he met Melchizedek, who brought bread and wine 
entered into a relationship with Abraham who paid tithes to Melchizedek, who was called the king of Salem. In chapter 15, we saw Abraham's covenant. God pointed up or told Abraham to look up and said, you see all those stars? Your descendants will be like those stars. And it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. God establishes his covenant all the way along, but it was came to a real head and a real prominence in chapter 15. In chapter 16, we saw Abraham's compromise, where his wife Sarah said, look, I've got this young Egyptian handmaid named Hagar, I'm obviously too old to have children. She's young. Let's fulfill God's promise and help God to fulfill his promise by you going into Hagar and having a child through her. Chapter 17, Abraham's name was changed to Abraham from Abram. And we saw Abraham's circumcision. He was 99 years old when that event took place. Enough said about that. We now come to what I'm going to call Abraham's contrast to keep all of the alliteration going, the C's going. A contrast between Abraham and Lot and what a difference there is. Because chapter 18 and next week, chapter 19, we, we see both of these lives together. Abraham versus his nephew Lot. A remarkable contrast. One, Abraham, lives the blessed life. Two, Lot, lives the blighted life. Remember what it says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That really fits Abraham. He was a blessed person. God blessed him. And he became a blessing to others. And the promise was is that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. But not Lot. His life was blighted. On one hand, Abraham was blessed. He gained. On the other hand, Lot lost everything. Abraham gained God's promises. Abraham gained land. Abraham gained descendants. Lot lost the place that he loved, Sodom. He lost his wife. He loses his children. He loses everything. Abraham gains and keeps on gaining. Though imperfect, though faltering, fumbling, failing, he gets back up and he learns new things about God. And his life becomes like the man in Psalm 1. Even in old age, he is bearing forth fruit. So we begin looking at the contrast between Abraham and Lot in these two chapters. C.S. Lewis once said, if you put first things first, second things will be thrown in. If you seek second things first, you will gain neither first nor second things. Now, that little statement by C.S. Lewis goes hand in hand with what Jesus said. If you seek first the kingdom of God, all these other things will be tossed in, added to you as well. The problem that we often have is that we, instead of seeking the kingdom of God, seek the other things that God said he would add. But we seek them. We get preoccupied with this world, with this life, with our agenda, with ourselves. And we find that we're not really seeking first the kingdom. We're seeking other things and really hoping that God will toss in the kingdom as well. But if we could grasp that like Abraham, I know it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to trust God even though everything seems against trusting God. I'm going to do it anyway. You'll become blessed, and everything else will be added to you. Now, chapter 18, I love it. I love this chapter. It's long. That's why we're only going to take one chapter tonight and not be as ambitious as last week. 
It's an unusual story. It's the story of three visitors that come to Abraham unexpectedly in the heat of the summer day. They're unusual because one of them is called Lord. In fact, so it's unmistakable. It says in verse 1, Then the Lord, and the term is Yahweh, the covenant name, that tetragrammaton of the Old Testament, Y-H-V-H, Yahweh, Yahweh, the covenant name that God will introduce himself as to Moses. The Lord appeared. But the Lord shows up with two others. Now we can only guess who they are because they're all three disguised as men, three human beings, three, three Bedouin-like visitors who are nomadic. They travel through and they visit with Abraham and then they leave toward Sodom. And we'll discuss them as we go along. We'll try to identify, at least as best as we can, uh, who that might be. But what I want to zero in on in the first several verses is the idea that was introduced at the beginning of the evening. What it means to be the friend of God. It's a beautiful title. It's one that when we hear the concept that you could be God's friend, it boggles the mind that any human being could be the friend of God who needs nothing and has no equal, no parallel, but it delights the heart, it draws us in. Especially when we consider what Jesus said in John 15, Henceforth, I no longer will call you my servants, but I call you my friends. Three times in the Bible, Abraham, and Abraham alone, is given the title, the friend of God. The first time it appears is Second Chronicles chapter 20, when King Jehoshaphat of Judah refers to Abraham as the friend of God. The last time that it appears is James chapter 2, verse 23, where James quotes the famous verse in Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. But the third time, the middle one, is the one that interests me the most because it's when God himself gives Abraham the title. That's found in Isaiah chapter 41. No need to turn there, but if you want to write it down to study it later, Isaiah 41, where God says to Israel, You are Israel, my servant, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. So what kind of attributes would there be in being God's friend? Well, let's work our way through the passage and we'll go through. I'll give you four of them. If you want to be God's friend, here it is. Number one, it will take spontaneity. Some of you may not like that. You don't like being spontaneous. Well, if you're going to be God's friend, get used to it. God just shows up unexpected, doesn't tell you, I'll be there next week at this time. Won't always do that. He just shows up. Now watch. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent at the door in the heat of the day. And so he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, like, huh, look who's here from out of nowhere. Behold, check it out. Three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the ground. It was the heat of the day, we're told by Moses, the author of Genesis, the human author. During the heat of the day in the summer, people who lived in tents, even still to this day, nobody travels. You do your work and you do your traveling early in the morning when it's cool and late in the afternoon toward evening when the air once again cools down. But in the heat of the day, nobody does anything. They hang out. The old siesta comes from ancient times. It's a good idea. You just take the middle part of the day and you just relax. So Abraham was not expecting anybody to come. It was the last thing he would expect a visitor, let alone three, to just suddenly appear. But the Lord appeared, and behold, three men. If you're going to be God's friend, as I mentioned, you just need to get used to this truth that 
God can suddenly change directions in your life. You know, you've got it all planned. You've got your day timer marked. You've got your agenda set. And God might just say, I've got editing rights. And a phone call comes or an announcement comes your way. And something occurs that drastically changes the direction of your life. There's a great old saying, not from the Bible, but it has a biblical truth to it. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Learn to be flexible. Here the Lord shows up. Sarah had no time to vacuum the tent. Pick up Abraham and Ishmael's dirty socks if they were lying around. Just, there's the Lord. Three visitors, and one of them is the Lord. Now, it mentions three men, and because of this, um, the Church of England has interpreted this as the Trinity, because there's three persons, but they're addressed as one, and the name the Lord, verse 1, is given. And that is why every year on Trinity Sunday they read the first part of Genesis 18 because they see this as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't quite see it that way. I think it's best to see one of them as the Lord. Let's call it a theophany, the appearance of God in some human form, whether you want to make it more precisely a Christophany, the appearance of Christ in the Old Testament or not. It's God appearing in some human form, And two of them are angels, the Lord and two angels. So a theophany and two angelic beings. I think there's more proof of that if you read down all the way to verse 22. It says, then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So if there were three and two of them leave, these two men, and Abraham's talking to the Lord... And then if you'll look at chapter 19, real briefly, verse 1, notice, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So if you piece it together, it would seem like the three are the Lord, Yahweh, in some human form, and two angelic beings. Well, anyway, back to our friendship idea. A good friendship can withstand spontaneity. You know what I mean by that? You have friends, doesn't matter when they call. They, they can call any time. You tell them, call me any time, and we're friends. There's others that you call them your friend, but you really don't want them calling you in the middle of the night. But we all have friends, and we don't mind if they call us in the middle of the night. But you've got to be good friends with somebody to withstand that kind of spontaneity. Now, I, I, I had a friend some years ago in California who would show up unannounced, like all the time. He'd come anytime he wanted to, and he'd knock on the door, and if we weren't at home or he didn't get a, an answer, he'd walk around the house and look in the windows and knock on the windows and <laughs> make sure that we were there. But because of the friendship... It was okay. You better be friends to have somebody around your house like that, right? Even Jesus said, suppose one of you has a friend who goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Remember that little story? Well, you better be a friend with somebody to come at midnight and say, I forgot to go shopping. Can I have a loaf of bread? If So if you want to be God's friend, just know that whatever agenda you set in your life, have enough flexibility that the Lord can alter your direction, change your plans, visit you with a blessing or a trial or a testing anytime he wants to. But because you're his friend and he's your friend, that's okay. Here's the second mark of being a friend with God, humility. It says in verse 2, So he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them... He ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the ground. The word bowed, very important word. You're going to find it a hundred times in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word shacha, shacha, to bow down, to do homage, to give reverence to. And it is the most frequently used word in the Old Testament for the translation in our English, worship. 
to bow down, shacha, to worship. In the Orient, in the Middle East, especially back then, it was very typical to greet somebody who is more esteemed than you are, like royalty. If you were in the presence of a king or a queen, you would get on your knees and you would gently and slowly incline your head till your forehead would touch the ground. And that was a a sign of respect. I acknowledge that you are greater, higher, and to be revered. Okay, Abraham is 99 years old. Abraham has 318 paid, trained servants. He has lots of flocks, lots of herd. He has, he has, um, uh, has made an impact already in his culture. He would be called in the Middle East today, if he were alive, a sheikh. A sheikh, somebody who has and exerts great influence on large numbers of people. But Abraham, in God's presence, bows down. And that is a proper response to a divine friendship. If you're going to be God's friend, it's not like being each other's friend, where we go, hey, dude, hey, buddy, buddy. And I get, I get a little bit miffed when I hear God, people talk about God, hey, my buddy in the sky, the, the old man upstairs. And I think, how dare you refer to God that way? He's God, and if you're going to have a friendship as a human with God, it better include worship and humility. I've told you the story about that old minister who survived the Jonestown, Johnstown flood back in Pennsylvania years ago, and uh, he always liked to tell the story of how he survived the Johnstown flood. Everybody he would meet, he would say, have you heard how I survived the Johnstown flood? And if they heard it, they'd roll their eyes, and he'd tell it anyway. Well, the old minister died and went to heaven. One day Peter said, hey, we're going to have a big gathering together tonight and we're going to be telling our stories and giving our testimonies. It's testimony night in heaven. And so the old minister got really excited and wide-eyed and ran up to Peter and said, hey, Peter, have you heard how I survived the Johnstown flood? And he began to tell him the story and he said, I'd love to share that tonight with everybody else in heaven. Peter hesitated. He said, okay. You can tell it, but just remember, Noah will be in the audience tonight. (laughs) And I love this story because it illustrates this truth. If you're going to tell about a flood and Noah is listening, it better be good. (laughs) Because it changes the whole complexion of really good flood stories when Noah's in the audience. He can top anybody. Well, here's Abraham, 99 years old, very influential, a sheikh by modern and ancient terms, and he bows down before the Lord, realizing God is in the audience tonight. And when God is in the audience, I may be somebody important, but in God's presence, I'm not. And he bows down. And so that's why I love worship, and that's why during times of worship, we should all be engaged. Because we're realizing God is in the audience tonight, and this is for him. And when we truly worship God, there's going to be humility. Humility in worship comes from two things. Number one, recognizing who God is. And number two, recognizing who we are in the presence of God. Once you get those two things straight, the inevitable result will be humility. Guaranteed. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? The year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple and he heard the angel singing. And Isaiah said, what? Yeah, he didn't say, wow is me. I'm Isaiah the prophet. Wow is me. He said, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Whatever great gift he thought he possessed, if he did up to that point, it was lost because in recognizing that he was in God's presence and recognizing who God was, Isaiah recognized who he was and it brought that sense of humility. So that's second. If you're going to be a friend of God, it's going to take a a level of humility where you realize God is in my audience. He's watching everything I do and we would bow down before him. And so, when he saw these three men, he bowed down himself to the ground. And notice he said, verse 3, My Lord, Adonai is the Hebrew word. 
Now, Abraham will refer to him in this passage as your servant and call God my Lord, Adonai. Adonai, the mighty one, the almighty, the strong one, the Lord. I think it was Max Lucado who wrote something quite clever. He said, you don't, um, you don't boast about your paper airplane when you're dealing with NASA. You don't brag about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. Um, you don't claim equality with Albert Einstein because you can write H2O. And you don't talk about your own goodness in the presence of the perfect one. That's sort of the idea here. He recognizes who he's with and he bows down and he calls him the Lord. Let's go on. Verse 3, and he said, My Lord, if I now have found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried. Okay, he's how old? Can you picture a guy, 99, hurrying? I don't know what that looked like, but it's in the text. He hurried. I don't know if it was like, hey, hold on. (laughs) Into the tent and said to Sarah, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. And so he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And so he said, here in the tent. Here's the third part of being God's friend. If the first one is spontaneity and the second one is humility, the third one is ministry. Serving. Serving. If you're going to be God's friend, there's going to be a requirement to serve the Lord, to get involved in kingdom work. Now, typically, if you're a Christian, you don't have to twist your arm. You want to do it. It's a response. I love God. I love being his friend. I want to serve the Lord. I get excited doing that. Abraham serves the Lord here. And he does it three ways. He does it personally. Now, he's 99 years old. It's a hot day. He had 318 servants. He could have just gone like this to any one of them, and watched them get really busy around him. But he personally is serving. Now, if you're going to serve the Lord, and by the way, if you're a Christian, I would say a Christian without a ministry is a contradiction. If he is your Lord, it means he's the master. The word Lord connotes that you are a servant that you're doing some form of service, some form of ministry, some volunteer, some way to get involved. And, and even if you're serving people, keep this in mind, you're first serving the Lord. See, this is where people get burned out in their service to the Lord. They forget they're serving the Lord. They, they serve people. You know what? It's not easy serving people. Because um, uh, sometimes sheep bite back. And so the only way to make it through victoriously is to remember, though I'm serving God's people, I first and foremost am serving the Lord. And as as part of that, it involves working with people, as imperfect as we all are. I love the fact that the priests of Israel, though they served God's people, they ministered to God's people, they took animals and killed them and, and sacrificed on behalf of the people, it said they they ministered to the Lord. That's the phrase the Old Testament uses. The priests ministered to the Lord, and that involved serving people. So Abraham serves personally. Number two, Abraham served immediately. We notice that language. He hurried. He said to his wife, quickly, he ran to the flock and said, uh, hasten or quick prepare supper. There was an immediacy to his service. Why is that noteworthy? Here's why. If you are waiting for the right feeling before you get involved, 
you might never get involved. If Abraham was waiting for the right feeling when those visitors suddenly appeared at the tent, well, think of the excuses he could have had. It's hot. I don't work during the heat of the day. Nobody does. Number two, I'm old. Old people don't work well in the heat of the day. Number three, I have a staff for this. He probably, if he waited for the right feeling, would never have gotten involved. Here's a third thing about his service. He gave generously. I want you to notice a few things in that text. He says in verse 6, Quickly make ready three measures of fine meal, the best, needed and make cakes. Verse 7, Abraham ran to the herd and took a tender and good calf and gave it to the young man and he hastened to prepare it. He gave generously. He gave the best. And I think that we should give the Lord the very best of who we are, the best of our talents, the best of our time, the best of our energy, because too many people give God leftovers. I'm not, I'm not using this anymore. This old, broken, beat-up, crummy piano that has lost half of its strings and is out of tune doesn't work, and it doesn't serve me very well. I'll donate it to the church. Hear God, and basically they just want, you know, a free pickup to haul their trash out. When David was looking for a place to build the temple, and he came to the threshing floor of Ornan, also called Arana in the Old Testament, it became the place where the temple was built. And if, if you come with us to Jerusalem, you'll see and walk on the threshing floor of Arana that David bought uh, for the temple to be built. When he saw the threshing floor, he offered to pay a price for it. And the, the guy who owned it, Ornan, said, Well, listen, you're, you're David, and you're doing this for God. It's yours gratis, for free. You don't have to pay me anything. David said, Nope, I insist. Ornan said, Nope, I insist. Can you imagine arguing about that? Usually people argue in the opposite direction. David finally put his foot down and said, I will never sacrifice to the Lord from that which costs me nothing. Now, there's a principle that David had and lived by, that if I'm going to give something to the Lord, I've got to feel it. It's got to cost me. I'm going to give him the best. So I'm going to pay for it, and I'm going to build a temple on this spot. Abraham, I think, had that same concept... I'm going to give God generously because God has been so generous to me in his promises. And to reciprocate that, that's part of the friendship. Verse 9. How are we doing for time? Barely. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. Now, me, I don't know, but three strangers... You identify one eventually as the Lord. Probably at first he didn't quite get it. But when three men knock on your door and say, where's your wife? I wonder what was going through his mind. It's a good thing he knew it was the Lord and was spontaneously, fervently, personally serving him. And by this time he said, it's okay. But she was in the tent. Now, in the past, it was Sarah, do you remember, who came up with the idea that you use Hagar instead of me because it can't happen through me, I'm too old. You're probably still with it, Abraham, enough to birth a child through a younger woman, but certainly not me. So now God's going to zero in on her specifically. So he said, here in the tent, and he said, that is he, the Lord, said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was listening, it says in parenthesis. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. So there in one part of the tent, there's a flap. She's on the other side making preparations. Now, just in case the reader would forget the condition of this couple, now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, 
and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. The author wants you to know that it was impossible in human terms for Sarah to have a baby. Therefore, because she's old, well advanced in age, can't have a child. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, that is Abraham. Isn't that a great thing to call your husband? Hello, my Lord. You laugh, but the New Testament makes that a point. Now I see I'm now I'm flustered. I lost my, 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 my spot. And the Lord, uh, yeah, why did Sarah laugh? Okay, yes. Okay, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Sarah laughed. God busted her. She probably did it to herself. She didn't laugh out loud like, ha ha. She probably just went. <clears throat> the Lord said, why did Sarah laugh? And then she then was busted. So she yelled out across the flap. I, I didn't laugh. And the Lord said, yeah, you did. I got that. I heard that. Now, it's interesting, in the previous chapter, when God made the promise to Abraham, he laughed. God didn't say anything about it. And that is because Abraham believed. He believed. There was no disbelief in him. That's what the Bible says. Abraham believed God when God made those promises. And it was accounted unto him for righteousness. But there are different ways to laugh, are there not? When a person laughs, it can be a laugh of um, light-hearted laughter. <laughs> then there's a scornful laugh. Ha <laughs> ha. Then there's a laugh of um, of uh, arrogance. Ha. <laughs> then there's a laugh of unbelief, like ha ha ha. I'm going to have a baby. You see, just because it says laughter. You have to then suppose what kind of laughter. When Abraham laughed, it was a laughter of joy because the Bible says Abraham believed God. Her laughter was a laughter of unbelief. She realized, ain't going to happen. I'm an old lady. He's an old guy. And she laughed and she even said, shall I have pleasure and my Lord also? So here's now the fourth and final mark of a friendship with God. Conformity to his will. Conformity to his will. Abraham believed God and was willing, even though he floundered and failed and went along with Sarah's scheme a couple chapters back, he believed God and he's willing to walk in obedience to that belief. Sarah showed an unbelief, and an unwillingness. Except for the fact that she's going to end up pregnant, she's going to have to have that baby and go along with it. Part of being the friend of the Lord is conformity to His will, conformity to His promise, and willingness to obey what He says. In John 15, Jesus said this, You are my friends if you do what I command you. You want to be Jesus' friend? Do what He says. Obey Him. Find areas in your life where the Bible speaks to that condition of your life and decide, I'm going to put that into practice. And I'm going to put it in practice in all of my life. He's going to be the Lord of my church life, the Lord of my relational life, the Lord of my pleasure and leisure life, the Lord of all of it. I'm willing for that to happen. That's conformity. And Abraham demonstrated that. Okay, so answer the question that God asked. Answer it in your own life. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Well, what's the answer? Of course not. Jeremiah will say later on, Lord, you made everything, the heaven, the earth, everything. There's nothing too hard for you. 
And again, we're in the book of Genesis. If you can believe the first verse of Genesis 1, first verse of the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth, it sort of makes the rest pretty easy, doesn't it? The Lord created the heavens and the earth, but I don't know if if he's going to be able to take care of me. Lord, it's $3,500, Lord. I know, I know, I know you created the heavens and the earth, but I don't know if you can take care of this debt. So it's always good when you pray to recognize who you're praying to. Acts chapter 4, they were threatened for their faith. They come together, and this is how they began their prayer. Lord, you're God. You're the maker of the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them, who by the mouth of the prophet said, and they quote Psalm 2, therefore look upon our affliction. So they, before they got to their need, they recognized to whom they were addressing. And once you recognize you're talking to God who has no limitations, it's very difficult recognizing that, bringing a limitation over onto him. Best to say, you can do anything. So I have this little $3,500 bill. It's nothing to you, Lord. Show me what to do. I have a house going into foreclosure, Lord. It is difficult for my family. I trust you. I trust your promises. Show me what to do, Lord. And then approach it in faith rather than in unbelief. Abraham's learning that. So the Lord said, no, but you did laugh. Now look at verse 16. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom... And Abraham went with them to send them on their way. So Abraham is showing God out, showing God the way as if he needed to know the way. Now, beginning in verse 16, we have the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot will be in Sodom in chapter 19, verse 1. So we're going to get that contrast between Abraham and Lot more so next week. Six times the Old Testament refers to Sodom. Four times the New Testament refers to Sodom. It has become so famous, it has become so infamous, that the term Sodom has become a byword for sexual perversion. And we'll see just what kind next week. But this begins the whole God moving in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah here. So he says, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Well, now we wonder, who is the Lord talking to? Is he talking to himself? Is he talking to those two angels that were with him? Was it inter-Trinitarian communication? Um, There's debate, and there's a lot of stuff written on that. doesn't matter to me. The Lord just said it. And he said it for the benefit of us who are reading it. Look at verse 19. It clears it up. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now this to me is, it's insightful. It's revolutionary. Here's Abraham, and God says, here's the guy that's going to bless the whole world. It's a reference to Christ, ultimately. Through the seed of Abraham, uh, Christ will be born, and he will bless the world with the hope and offer of salvation. But in verse 19, it shows me that God not only sees that Abraham will influence the world, but God will see that Abraham will influence his own family who will influence the world. Now mark this, mighty man Abraham, verse 19, that he may command his children and his household after him that they may keep the way of the Lord. If your children go to school, and most children do go to school, 16% of their time is spent at school. That's not very much. 16. Now you say, well, that's a lot of time at school. 16% if you just go by hours. If your kids go to school and go to Sunday school, add 1%. 
Sunday school is about 1% of your child's time. 83% of the time, they're at home with you, parents. So you can see the fallacy of a parent saying, I send my kids to Christian school and to Sunday school, and I expect them to teach them what they need to know. Well, both of those systems only have your kids 17% of the time. 83% of the time, they're in your house. So by pure mathematics, you exert a greater influence on your child than school and Sunday school. Abraham is learning that. God is revealing that. I've called you, Abraham, not just to bless the world, which is a pretty big order, but your family. Trickle-down righteousness. Trickle-down evangelism. Watch how I live, son. Watch how I live, daughter. In the tent, in the household, the percentage of the time that I have you watch my life so that in watching my life, you can learn what it is to follow the Lord. And so he is to lead his family. And he is to influence his family. So I just throw that out there so that as parents, we just sort of come face to face with that once again. I, I need to impact and input my, my child. Now, some of you have teenagers. Your child turned 13 or they're 14 and you're dealing with the rebel force. And you recognize there's a relationship, but it's changed now. They're individuating. They're becoming more adult. They want more of their space, more of their time. And it's difficult for some to work through those years. Mark Twain gave his advice. He said, everything runs smoothly till your kid reaches age 13. That's the time, said Mark Twain, to put him in a barrel, (laughs) snugly hammer the lid down, and feed him through the knot hole. Then, when he turns 16, close up the knothole. That was his advice in classic Mark Twain way of writing. You can't do that. I mean, first of all, it would be highly illegal to put your kid in a barrel and hammer it shut. But that aside, we can't afford to disengage. We can't afford to give it to somebody else to influence them. We have those years, we have that time, and we have that influence, that power. Engage them as much as you can, as much as the Lord will give you insight. And ask the Lord for insight to do that. Okay. I left off at verse 20. Oh yeah, verse 20, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Here's a question. If God says, there's been an outcry against Sodom, I'm going to go check it out. I guess my question is, who's doing the outcrying? Maybe it's Abraham. I'm going to throw in a thought. Maybe it's Lot. You say, oh no, Lot's too far gone. He's the bad guy that you're contrasting Abraham with. It's true. However, did you know that the New Testament refers to Lot as righteous? In the epistle of Peter, he says, and righteous Lot, um, his soul was vexed day in and day out by what he heard and what he saw. He's called righteous. Now, that doesn't mean he is as righteous as Abraham was and he believed God's promises and was walking with God. But in comparison to Sodom and Gomorrah, in comparison to that standard... He was certainly more righteous, and in that standard, he would be considered righteous. It could be that he was there, he was sucked in by it, but he was complaining against it. It was horrible here. Of course, he didn't do anything to mitigate against that. He still was, in fact, he's one of the elders in the city, as we'll see tonight, hopefully, as we close. Here's something else that's interesting about those verses that I just read. God is not reactive. 
He wants, he's heard the outcry, and of course God knows all, but before he judges, he's going to just send out a little party to investigate personally, get first-hand knowledge. That's written for our benefit, so that we could never accuse God of being unrighteous when it comes to judgment. He knows fully the situation. He's not reactive. He's confirming it. And it would seem that uh, God has allowed the outcry and watched the sin and allowed more outcry and watched the sin and the sin got worse and worse and worse and worse until finally it reaches a point where the iniquity of a city or a nation is full, it's complete. And do you remember that text back in chapter 15 around verse 16 where God tells Abraham that his um, uh, descendants are going to be uh, slaves in a foreign land, Egypt, for 400 years and then come back. And then God says, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full or complete. It's an interesting phrase. I don't know if we covered it or not. I actually forget. But it tells me that God has a limit. The Spirit of God will not always strive with man, Genesis 6.3. So God is patient, God is gracious, God is merciful, but he waits until a nation reaches a level at which point God must act in judgment in order to be just. And Sodom has reached that point. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to confirm it first. I'm going to make sure I have all the facts right. And then I'm going to move ahead and I'm going to destroy them. You don't have to turn to it, but I'm going to read you a little insightful passage I found in Ezekiel that will give you some insight. Now listen to this. God is speaking to Jerusalem, and uh, he says, you know, I'm about to come against you, Jerusalem. And he says this. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you have and your daughters have done. Look. This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. They lived in abundance. They didn't care about others in the world who were poor. They just sort of became very narrow-minded, very self-focused, very prideful. And that led, led, it says, to the abomination that they committed. And God finally had enough. And God judged them. Well, there could be more that is, could be said, but for time we better move on. Verse 23, And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous? With the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 that were in it? Now, as we make our way through this, and we'll just read through it, it might sound to you like God and Abraham are having an argument and Abraham backs God into a corner. First of all, God never needs to be reminded that he's righteous. It's like man going, no, God, have you forgotten that you're God? And have you forgotten that you're supposed to be just and righteous? Ah, no. Get a clue, Abraham. I've known that before you got a clue. So what is happening here? Well, let's work our way through it, and then we'll make a couple of comments. Verse uh, 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the place for their sakes. Abraham answered and said, "Um, indeed, now I, uh, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he said, if I find 45, I will not destroy it. Then he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be found 40 there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. And then he said, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. He said, I won't do it if I find 30 there. He said, 
Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. He said, I won't destroy it for the sake of 20. And then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. And so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. It sounds like they're arguing. It sounds like Abraham is backing God into a corner until you get to verse 33. And in verse 33, it doesn't say, and when Abraham was finished and had done what he wanted, it says when God was finished, when the Lord had finished. So what we understand here is that God all the while had in his perfect will to be merciful by separating the righteous, that would be Lot and family, away from them and then destroying the wicked. It was God's plan all along. But God wanted Abraham to be a part of the process. So God initiates the conversation, leads him through it. And when God is done with Abraham asking what God wanted him to ask, it was done. It was finished. The Lord is the one leading it. The Lord is the one who wanted to show mercy all along, but wanted Abraham to be involved in prayer as part of the process. Therein lies the beauty of prayer. Prayer isn't getting my will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. And God has his perfect plan. And so in prayer, God invites me to tap into his program, to become at one with him, and to pray for things. And then when you see things happen according to the will of God, many of which have been included in your prayers and in my prayers, there's a great satisfaction of laboring together with the Lord. So I agree with Warren Wiersbe that Abraham here becomes one of the select group of people known as intercessors, people who pray for people, people who labor in prayer for people. And now I don't know if you're called to that ministry of intercessory prayer, but I believe all Christians are called at some point to intercede for others. In fact, uh, one of the things that I have loved for years, and I just got my copy again this year, YWAM has a beautiful prayer journal And one of the reasons I've always loved YWAM's prayer journal is it gives me people groups every day of the year to pray for. And there's a write-up of their needs, like the slave trade is sort of the focus this month in different parts of the world and praying for specific governments. Then the days of the week are broken up to pray for family and for media and for government and for business, etc. And I love having that little time in the morning. It's a regiment time where I can intercede for other people and be a part of God's great plan. I encourage you to get some kind of plan of persevering for others in prayer. doesn't have to be that one. It could be any. You could write one on your own if you'd want to. But just to be involved. It was Paul who wrote to Timothy and said, I, I, I would that you first of all would intercede, pray for kings and those in authority and intercede for them, that we might live a peaceful life before God. And so Abraham is part of that. By the way, if you want to be like Jesus Christ, be an intercessor. That's what his work is right now. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and for me, praying for us, according to the will of God. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking. Question, why did Abraham stop at ten? Well, he didn't want to push it. He's thinking of Lot. And Lot had a wife and Lot had children and maybe husbands or wives or those promised. And uh, some commentators believe that if you were to count up Lot and his wife and children and uh, add a partner, a wife or husband, you'd have exactly ten. So he brought God all the way up to this ten, which is what God wanted. And when the Lord was finished, it was done. And he went on from that. So, a beautiful balance in Abraham's life. Let's close with verse 1 of chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. 
When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Oh, a good outward show. But what is he doing? He's sitting at the gate. That means he was a leader. He was an elder in the city. So remember what it says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the ungodly, stand in the way of the sinner, or sit in the seat of the scornful. Lot started by walking the way of the ungodly and pitching his tent toward Sodom, and now he's sitting as an elder in the gate of Sodom. That's where he is before God judges that place. I want to close with this thought. The three that came to Abraham on that day and gave that promise, and one was the Lord. They came to the tent. They stood outside. And the Lord waited until Abraham invited the Lord in. The Lord didn't come and say, I am Yahweh, I'm coming in. Open that tent flap, I'm coming in. He waited for Abraham to show hospitality. Abraham invited him in. That's how God works. The Lord works by invitation. He'll never force himself on you. He waits for you to invite him in. To the church of Laodicea, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and I will sup with him, have fellowship with him, dine with him, and he with me. Do you want the Lord in your life? You have to invite him. If the Lord isn't in your life, why not invite him? Oh, I don't know. You know, my life's pretty messed up. Better invite him in. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, my life is so messed up. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, you don't know what I've done. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let's see. He forgave Abraham. He forgave Moses. Moses was a murderer. He forgave David. David was an adulterer. He's in the kingdom. God's in the business of taking impossible cases and transforming them. So, why not tonight, if you haven't yet, invite Christ to come in and live inside you, your house, your temple, your tent, and take over? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray in Jesus' name that all of us daily would invite you to take control of our lives, to manage our daily agenda, to be in control of our thoughts, that we would be friends with you. We would learn to be flexible with you. We would be humble in worship, recognizing who you are and who we are. I pray, Lord, that we would serve you, tapping into whatever ministry gifts we might have for your glory and to help the body of Christ. Lord, I pray then we would conform to your will as your friends believe your promises and do your bidding. Lord, above all, I pray that everyone here would invite the Lord into their lives. As we're praying right now, if you haven't yet invited Christ personally into your life, where he's at the center, where you've surrendered your life to him, Maybe tonight you want to do that. I strongly encourage you to do that. Maybe you've walked away from that friendship with God. Maybe he's not the center of your life or hasn't been in the past several months or years. You feel like you're on the outside looking in. Come home tonight. Invite Christ in. If you are willing to do that, As we're praying, as our heads are bowed, I want you to raise your hand up. Maybe you've been brought by a friend or you've just come out of curiosity, but if you're willing to give your life to Christ tonight, to surrender your life to Him, would you slip your hand up in the air so I can see it? God bless you, sir, in the middle. And you right in the middle, right smack dab in this middle of this section. God bless you. And toward the back, I see your hand. And off to the side on my right, I see your hand. Anyone else? Right there in the middle, on my right, in the balcony. 
right here to my left on the very front, up up in the front. Heavenly Father, we pray for all of these precious people whom you love, for whom Christ died to make all things new. And we pray that like Abraham, as they invite you into their life, into their tent, so to speak, you transform them, that you'd share your heart with them, your promises with them. You'd make all things new. I pray you'd forgive them and they would know and feel forgiven tonight. I pray they would experience peace like they've never experienced it before. Total transformation, we pray, as Jesus takes control. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.